Thanks, Cam. So our reading this morning is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Um, And that's also be on the screen beside me here. So Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, uh, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Thanks, Lockie. Hey, it's great to be with you all. Um, my name's Jamie, if we haven't met yet. And can I say, your brothers and sisters at Trinity Colonel Light Gardens, send their love. We're cheering you on and praying for you all the way. All right. Question. Does following Jesus make life less stressful or more stressful? What's your gut? Less stressful or more stressful? We live in a very stressed out world, don't we? It's always been an anxious place, but thanks to the great progress of technology, I'm now free to stress about events happening all over the world the instant they happen. I can move from worrying about an unanswered work email to an international conflict to a parenting technique I really should try, uh, just with a flick of a thumb, Uh, And all from the comfort of my bed, if I want to. Uh, It's a hyper-connected, highly stimulating moment in history, isn't it? And there's great things about it. But it's part of a picture we all know of a world set on edge. So what about when it comes to Jesus? Well, we're going to go low-tech and think about these early Christians in the Roman colony of Philippi. In verse 1 of our passage today, the Apostle Paul urges them with beautiful affection, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And we've heard, haven't we, in this great letter from Paul, in prison, standing firm is not standing still. Uh, Because there's pressures coming from outside. Citizens of Philippi had all the privileges of citizens of Rome, even though it was way out in Macedonia. But these believers were now also citizens of heaven and living for another kingdom, especially under the brutal peace of Rome. Oh, it invites pressure. It involves choosing the humble path, chapter 2. 
and guarding yourself against the seductive religious voices saying that you could have more if you just add these culturally acceptable rituals to the gospel, chapter 3. Not to mention the pressures within this fledgling church. The letter is full of calls to unity, and in today's passage, we find out why. Two of the leaders in the community are at odds. And what better way to rock the faith of believers under pressure than to see its leaders divide? Pressure without, conflict within. You could understand if these Philippians were asking themselves, has following Jesus made our lives less stressful or more? Because it kind of seems like more, right? You can imagine these Philippians thinking, huh, like I used to worry about, you know, being a good Roman citizen here in Macedonia and making a good life for myself here in Philippi. Now I worry about that and being a citizen of a kingdom that sometimes puts me at odds with Rome. I have this new sense of concern for my Philippian neighbors who don't know Jesus. I come out of conversations with them, sometimes, you know, second-guessing, like, did I say enough? Did I say too much? I'm in this new community called church, and sometimes it's awesome and it feels like family. But it's not like the rest of society where I just hang out with people at the same station in life as me. We're an odd bunch. And I sometimes find it hard to get along with my church family. You could be sympathetic if they at least entertain the thought, would my life be a bit smoother if I stood a little less firmly with Jesus? If you can sympathize with that question, listen in as Paul urges this little group of believers whom he loves and longs for, stand firm. Yes, there is stress involved in following Jesus, but it's the only path to rest and contentment. Because God protects churches under pressure with a peace the world can never offer. Not just peace in theory, but in practice. And we can see how it plays out in these verses. So, point one in your leaflets, peace amongst siblings and strugglers. Um, we're not just being kind of trying to be warm and fuzzy when we talk about church as family. If God is your father, then the believers you sit in church with are your sisters, your brothers. And that profound relationship is obvious in the way Paul speaks to the Philippians. Separated from them geographically, he writes in verse 2, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. We don't know much about these two women. The fact that Paul names them as his co-workers tells us they're key leaders in Philippi. Uh, we don't know the details, but what is clear is that they're disagreeing as sisters in Christ. They both believe the true gospel. Uh, we know that because Paul's not afraid to call out people who distort the truth of the cross in chapter 3. 
And because he asks them here to agree, not in the spirit of getting along, but in the Lord. So their disagreement must be about some aspect of how to strive for the truth of the gospel together. And that happens, doesn't it? Like, we want to see this city reached with the great news of Jesus. We probably have some different ideas about how to do that. We want to live with integrity as believers in an unbelieving culture. That's complicated. Add on the temptations that come with being prominent figures in a community, and we can understand how that conflict came up. But Paul says, if you want to stand firm in the gospel, you need to seek peace with each other. Things get a bit more intriguing in verse 3 as Paul kind of advocates for how this peace might come. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, an unnamed third individual, um, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So Paul trusts these sisters in Christ are going to be able to work this out, but they're going to need some help from their church family. It's uncomfortably personal, isn't it? Like Paul names names and frankly asks them to do some work. Yet it's refreshingly direct and honouring in its tone. Like Paul doesn't go for the talk-behind-their-backs approach that too often dominates church politics or the you know, people-are-saying approach, which leaves so much room for side-taking and gossip. Now, with tender transparency, Paul speaks directly to those involved and appeals for reconciliation. And notice the key details that he mentions. Euodia and Syntyche have been striving together for the sake of Paul's gospel. And like all of Paul's co-workers, and indeed all Christians, their names are written in the book of life, written by God himself, based on nothing that they bring to the table, but just God's loving and merciful choice to adopt them into his family. Which just cuts through, doesn't it? So much of the pride that can dominate conflicts. It's like Paul was saying to these sisters at odds, before you divide, before you start getting people to take your side, just ask these two questions. One, is she contending for the same gospel as me? And two, is her name written in the same book of life as me by God's grace? If so, as it is in this case, you can probably take a deep breath and just relax about putting your preferences second if need be. Can I say I'm thrilled by the stories that I hear about this church uh, of people from different backgrounds coming together because of Jesus' cross. Uh, can I encourage you not to take that unity for granted? Because you probably know divisions and side-taking tragically can be a thing in churches. 
Now is a good time, I think, to stop and ask for this family of believers, what relational pressures might we face in our mission together? It's not hard to imagine. You know, planting churches, which is a big part of our shared culture, strains relationships. It involves goodbyes. It involves changing things. The fact that the gospel drives us out of ourselves and towards the world so they might know Jesus, oh, it introduces pressure. It's costly and we'll have different ideas about how to do it. Not to mention all the normal human stuff, right? Personalities, cliques of people that just get on a bit easier. Now is a good time to contemplate all that so that if such a time should arise that there is a Euodia and Sintiki-like situation at Tonsley, you'll be ready to react this way. Are they contending for the same gospel as me? Are their names written in the same book of life as me? If so, we can keep calm and work towards having the same mind, not in the name of niceness, nah, but in the Lord, tender transparency, ready to work. That's how God protects churches under pressure, with a peace the world can never offer. He's invested in how we work through that conflict within. And in point two, we see how invested he is in protecting us from the pressures that hit us from outside. Paul draws on military imagery in verse 7 when he says that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's the language of a garrison, a military base set up in a town. There would have been one in Philippi, privileged place that it was, with Roman soldiers stationed there whose job it was to guard the city from threats with the unyielding strength of Rome. The presence of a garrison tells the citizens of a city two things. One, you are safe and sound. But two, we've set this up for a reason. Uh, there are threats that we need to guard you from. Which is why I titled this point, Peace in Stressful Circumstances and Not a Stress-Free Life. With that in mind, come back to verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Paul the prisoner isn't talking about a shallow cheer-up. This is deep joy. Again, those three little words, in the Lord, are clarifying. That's the secret to constant joy, because it's not rejoice in your circumstances. No, it's rejoice in Jesus. Our circumstances are kind of like a river, Sometimes they're gushing with refreshment, other times running a little dry. Sometimes I feel great, other times I'm scraping up the dregs, right? But if Jesus is real, then there is always this deep subterranean stream to draw from. Because I know I am loved by God always, so much he gave his only son I know that life means something. Even the hard bits make me more like Jesus. And I know that I have a future, the day Jesus returns to bring me home. That's true 
in every circumstance. And verse 5 tells me that he is near. Paul wasn't alone in that dirty cell. Jesus has promised to be with his followers by his spirit. Come what may. And the day is coming where that spiritual reality will also be a physical experience when we stand in his new creation together. If that's true, then we can do what verse 5 says, which is let your gentleness be evident to all. I want to highlight that word translated gentleness or reasonableness in some versions. Um, In 1 Timothy 3, Paul uses the same word as the alternative to violence. And in Titus 3, it contrasts to arguing. It's about what you do instead of being physically violent, gentleness, or engaging in a quarrel, reasonableness. In both of those examples, at least, it's the calm and kind way to respond to a challenging situation. And that's a quality that stands out, right? Especially in heated environments. Um, So you might say, that triage nurse in emergency was so reasonable. They're dealing with people at their most vulnerable and often least patient, and they still manage to be kind. That's amazing. If you know that the Lord is near, then you can have that same standout quality when the juicy piece of gossip comes your way or when the colleague gives you a real pointy comment about Christians. Let your gentleness be known. Joy, not in our circumstances, but in the Lord. Gentleness in the face of conflict. And then verse 6 prayer in anxious times. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So maybe a bit ironically, um, I've been quite anxious about preaching on this verse. Um, We've been working through Philippians at CLG too, and it's kind of just verse 6 has just been there looming. Because for good reasons, uh, verse 6 is a treasured verse, memorized by lots of Christians. And yet at the same time, there's a real risk of misapplication, especially given that we live in a time where clinical anxiety is causing pain to so many. Beyond Blue tells me that almost a third of people in Australia will experience an anxiety condition in their lifetime, which tells me that this will be a real issue for many in this room today. And because this verse uses the word anxiety, I want to be really careful not to give a shallow answer to the suffering you or someone you love is experiencing. So what verse 6 is not saying First, Paul isn't talking about clinical anxiety when he says, do not be anxious about anything. He's not talking about that physiological response of fight or flight that just stays on relentlessly. In the context of this passage, he's talking about dealing wisely with the normal worries that come from living in a broken world as a citizen of heaven. 
One of the challenges, I think, to thinking about mental health as believers is that we are complex creatures, right? Body, mind and spirit, all of those aspects of who we are is touched by the brokenness of living in a fallen world. And that affects every human in different ways. And sometimes our own sin is directly a part of that. And other times it's not. That's the biblical picture and it's complex. Sadly, sometimes Christians have oversimplified either by ignoring the spiritual realities of who we are and just saying, well, this is a medical issue and the Bible has nothing to say to you. Or, and this is what I want to be careful about now, um, of ignoring the physical realities of who we are and just saying, this is a spiritual problem. And so what you need to do is just obey verse 6 and everything will get better. That would be a very unkind and I actually think sub-biblical way to apply this verse. I've suggested some resources on clinical anxiety in your leaflets, um, but let me say to those who are experiencing mental health challenges right now, I cannot guess how hard it has been for you to get here today or even to listen along online. You do need encouragement from your brothers and sisters. And the gospel does offer great hope to you in your suffering. And so I praise God that you are here. You also need the medical resources that are available for your physical health. A good doctor is a great gift from God. Medication is sometimes a really important part of treating anxiety conditions, and Christians aren't exempt from that. I have personally benefited from seeing a counsellor uh, in the past, and I imagine I probably will again in the future. God has given a variety of gifts to his complex creatures living in a broken world. Next thing verse 6 is not saying is, it's not saying that all worry is wrong. I know it says don't be anxious about anything. Um, when we read that verse in its context, we find that Paul has already mentioned two good forms of anxiety in this very letter. And Paul was quite smart, so I take it that wasn't a mistake. So, chapter 2, verse 20, Timothy is commended for showing genuine concern or anxiety for your welfare. In uh, verse 28 of chapter 2, Paul himself speaks of having anxiety for the Philippians. So there are things that it's right to be anxious about, uh, like caring for others, and especially their standing in the gospel. And yet I take it that even this good kind of care could move into ungodly anxiety if it were done in a way that forgets that the Lord is near, unprayerfully and without thanksgiving, taking the salvation of the world on your shoulders. So Paul is getting at both what we worry about and how we worry about it, which means, and this is the next thing verse 6 can't be saying, it's not saying that Christians should expect to live without a care in the world. 
Rather, it's about how you respond to the anxieties that come from living as a Christian. We also need to be faithful to the tone of verse 6. If you're really struggling with anxiety, you'll probably hear verse 6 in all caps. Do not worry about anything or else, right? That's what Paul Grimmond, uh, who wrote the excellent book on clinical anxiety I recommend in the leaflet, says. He's a pastor who has wrestled with anxiety for years, and he makes his helpful observation about the commands not to worry in the Bible. Overwhelmingly, these commands are not reprimands, but rather gentle encouragements to honor God in the face of great difficulty. When we read, do not be anxious about anything, we are not to read it hearing the voice of the schoolmaster standing over us with an itchy desire to wield the cane, but rather hearing all the gentleness of a mother sitting with her child who has been woken by a nightmare. Don't worry about anything. That's reading this passage in context. Remember how Paul addresses these believers in verse 1. He loves them and is thrilled with God's work in their lives. So with that tone in mind, what do we need to take from verse 6? The kind of worry Paul is addressing is the normal anxieties that come from living in a broken world, What shall we eat? What shall we wear? But made particularly acute by being citizens of heaven. What if I miss out on earthly things because I put Jesus first? What about when others around me don't share that priority? To that, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. The Lord is near and he has promised to look after you. And notice the alternative to anxiety. It's not no worries, it's prayer. Rather than letting our worries stew, we can always ask our good Father. He knows what's best for us. Sometimes the answer won't be what we want, but it's always okay to ask. Ask and thank. Those two little words, with thanksgiving, are so refreshing to a worried soul. Because I don't know about you, but when the pressure of life increases, so often my thankfulness levels decrease. I start fixating on how I feel I'm missing out or stressing about what might happen next. But the simple act of saying thank you has a great way of taking me outside myself. And funnily enough, the secular psychologists affirm that gratitude is healthy. How much more when you know who to thank. As my friend said to me as we sipped lattes at Glenelg Beach one sunny day, I see all this and feel a vague sense of thankfulness. You see the master's hand. Spot on. Rather than spiraling inwardly, the master invites us to talk to him. That's how we come under the shelter of his garrison. The presence of a garrison means that there are threats, So it's not that worries won't come, but we can respond by talking to God about them in the full confidence that our hearts and minds remain safe in Jesus. Can I say, I'm constantly blown away by how Christians older and wiser than myself do this. You know, in this room right now, there are believers going through some 
huge trials. And yet you keep moving towards your father. You keep telling me how thankful you are for your brothers and sisters. You tell me how God's word is speaking into your life with great delight. If the gospel weren't true, that would make no sense. And yet you remind me that the gospel is true because you have this peace. And you hold on to it even tighter when the pressure is on. It's a mindset that rises way above the best philosophers of our age. It can only come from the God of peace and you have it. So let's be a community that keeps working on that knee-jerk reaction of responding to stress with prayer. If you are in a place where you're really struggling with worry, you might find it hard to pray. Um, one practical thing I've found helpful is using the prayers that other believers have written down, the Lord's Prayer, or a book of prayers. I, I found Valley of Vision, a great collection. Let your siblings help you focus your mind to speak to your father when you're struggling to. If you're here today wondering if the Christian faith could be for real, can I invite you to consider the authenticity of Christian peace? Uh, we're not alone in an uncaring universe. There is someone to thank and someone to ask. And I hope you're seeing today that Jesus does offer a way to face the real pressures of life head on, with a peace that rises above the best ideas this world offers. And I think if you watch believers go through hard times, uh, even as you get to know people here, you'll see that it's a very practical peace. So point three, practicing for peace. Um, I love how Paul responds to the pressures of life. He doesn't seek to just escape the pain or explain it all away. He's not about kind of drumming up a fake sense of calm. Rather, this is a way of life in the real world that we can practice and pursue, both in our thinking and in our actions. Um, in our culture of specialization, we need to be careful not to peg ourselves as like a thinking person or a doing person, because we want to honor Jesus as whole people, body and mind, and it's part of how we pursue peace in this stressful world. So Paul starts with our thinking in verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It's so easy for our thinking to spiral downwards, isn't it? Like think about how the internet enables that. You can pick a topic that you find stressful, um, the housing market, the environment, parenting, and just find article after article outlining all the things going wrong, algorithmically tailored to reinforce your point of view with comments to scroll through, just each angrier and more anxious than the last. But it's not technology's fault. You can imagine these Philippians, right? working out life as Christians in a pagan world, murmuring amongst themselves about how it's getting harder to do business as a Christian. You can imagine Euodia and Syntyche 
tempted to just think the worst of each other. You can imagine this church fretting. How are we going to reach a society that's just so anti-Jesus in its values? And it's not like Paul denies those challenges, but into that space he says, turn your minds to consider the good. He invites us, if you like, into an upward spiral to lift your thinking from the concerns of life to God and his ways. And it's not just kind of wishful fantasy thinking. It's as real as Jesus' tomb was empty. So we can linger on the things we know of God through his word in the Bible. We can lift our eyes to see the fruit of the gospel in real people's real lives. And even to see how we can see the goodness of God in aspects of our secular world. Points of connection that might be gospel opportunities. I love seeing this happen in my growth group on Tuesday nights. Um, we talk about the Bible and life, and I get to see how Elliot thinks about evangelism in his workplace. It's lovely. How Brielle thinks about passing the gospel on to her kids. It's admirable. And of course, it's not just peace in theory, it's in action. So Paul says in verse 9, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Think about how Paul and, and those who follow his gospel make decisions, how they respond to challenges and have a go. The invitation is to resist the gravity of the downward spiral and chase the upward spiral instead. When life gets strained, gravity will pull you to pray less and worry more. Resist it. Move towards God, your protector. The downward spiral pulls us to respond to conflict by feeling hard done by. It pulls you to anxiously plan and plan with no reference to God and it leads to bitterness. It beckons you to withdraw from the world. The downward spiral, so artfully carved out in the comment sections of the internet, invites me to focus my mind on the troubles of my life, the things I feel I deserve but am missing, the things people have done to bug me. But Jesus invites us to find steady joy in him, to focus your mind on the things around you that point to his beauty, he invites you to practice an other person-centered life, following the footsteps of Paul on the humble road to glory. It's going to take practice, hey, but I want that to be the well-worn path in my life. Preparing to preach on this passage, as always, has been searching for my soul. It's made me aware of how quick I am to stew and speculate on the worries of life. Uh, when I was preaching on this passage at CLG a few weeks ago, I devised a new little plan to try. I called it Pastoring Myself. Uh, it's three questions for my little A5 journal, and I've been jotting down answers for the past few weeks. Uh, here's what it looks like. Today I read. Today I'm thankful for concerns for my father. That's just one little practical attempt at focusing my thoughts and actions on the upward spiral. Does Jesus make life more 
or less stressful? Um, of course, it's not really the right question, is it? There are stresses on the road with Jesus. But the real question is, does following Jesus lead to peace? Real, true, deep peace. Lord, help us to know that peace, not just in theory, but in practice. Amen.